everybody. This is Father Tom Provenzano welcoming you to another episode of the Axe Podcast. And today we're going to be taking a look backward at the first Sunday of Advent and you know, maybe talk a little bit about the themes I hit during my homily for that, for that Sunday. And then look ahead to the Sunday coming up ahead of us uh, and talking a little bit about John the Baptist and not exactly giving my homily. I haven't really finished my homily yet for the for for a Sunday quite yet, but just to kind of go over some things that might help you understand the context of the reading as we're kind of moving forward. Uh, just, you know, just as a, a note before we get we get going, uh, my you know plan here is to be consistent in uh, dropping a new episode on Saturdays. Now, I'm dropping this a day early on the Friday because tomorrow we have our catechist uh, retreat. And uh, please pray for pray for us uh, as we do that. So I don't think I'm going to have time really to work on it uh, tomorrow. So I want to make sure I get you know this episode up today. So for sure, an episode on Saturdays and uh, even maybe some surprise ones during the week. So uh, please enjoy this episode, and I hope you look forward to the ones in the future. And before we move on with this particular episode, uh, let's do this. Let's open up with uh, a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I just wanted to kind of give a little uh, kind of a, a, a recap of what this last Sunday uh, was all about in terms of being the first Sunday of Advent, uh, talk a little bit about the Word of God that we're going to be hearing in the daily Masses uh, during this week, and then maybe a preview of the Sunday to come. This is sort of a catch-up uh, episode. I didn't post a, a Sunday homily because I preached in Spanish this week, and you know, I figured since most of my listeners are English speaking, maybe the the Spanish you know wouldn't go over so well. Better to give you something that you understand, <laughs> as opposed to something you you know. Though you know, if you're doing babble or something, maybe it could be a good uh, supplement. Not that my Spanish is so great that I would want to think that you should learn from it. But anyway, uh, when we think about Advent quite quite often, we, we think of a time of preparation, and, and we think specifically of a time of preparation for Christmas, but the reality is that that's really not the case. Uh, yes, Christmas is just, the, however, I think somebody says 27 days away or something like that, however many days away Christmas is, it's it's coming on us like a like a steam train but nonetheless the, the liturgical season of advent isn't so much uh, a preparation for christmas in particular as it's meant to be a watchful prayerful waiting time for the coming of the lord and specifically the coming of the lord at the end of the age it's here's another five dollar word for you eschatological meaning to it eschatology has to do with the end times eschaton and uh and and so in these days and in these weeks, 
the focus really is on understanding that the world as we know it is passing away, that our Lord will return in his glory, uh, and that it's the time for us to repent and to turn back to the Lord. Uh, you know, the great debate out there is, you know, is Advent a penitential season? And in, in as much as I always have tried to avoid uh, controversies <laughs> on this uh, program, uh, you know, I, I have to lean toward the idea that it, it, it may not be exactly a penitential season, but that it certainly has aspects of it. Uh you know, in the in the liturgical studies departments of, you know, our our major Catholic universities here, they would probably argue that it isn't, that it's not a penitential season. But I, I think if repentance is part of the the package, if you will, it, it's really hard to separate repentance from a certain penance and, and penitential attitude. And certainly it is a time, one of those times when we do emphasize going to the Sacrament of Reconciliation, which is also known as the Sacrament of Penance, uh, which is also known as, obviously, Confession. You know, uh, you know, to make a good examine of conscience, to really look at where our life is, and to uh, you know, then repent and, and go to confession, get absolution, and be prepared for receiving our Lord at Christmas in the Blessed Sacrament and in, in communion, and so yeah, all this is is a part of it. So again, it may not be technically speaking a penitential season, but I think there certainly are penitential overtones. Let's let's put it that way. And the, I think the Word of God that we were offered this week, this past Sunday, is actually really very good and very rich, and really a good sort of. Uh, summing up of what the season is all about. And the, the first reading is from Jeremiah, uh, from Jeremiah 33, and it, it talks about how you know the Lord will fulfill his promise made to the house of Israel and to, to Judah. And uh, how the, that essentially it's, it's a promise of him you know, lifting up a savior and uh, that he will restore, uh, you know, he will restore the, the kingdom of, of David. And in those days, Judah shall be safe and Jerusalem shall dwell secure. You got to remember Jeremiah is, is living at the, at the time of the exile. And a lot of Jeremiah is doom and gloom. And this is a part of Jeremiah that's trying to give hope. And again, this is something where scholars will talk about, is this really Jeremiah or is this a... A later, uh, you know, prophet using Jeremiah's name, you know, in the tradition of Jeremiah, you know, that stuff isn't quite as all important as I think it it may seem, really, to us who are working our way through the spiritual life. You know, the bottom line is, it is the word of God, and our Lord is making that promise, and we do believe that, while in in limited ways, God did fulfill that promise by having the, uh, uh, the Israelites, the, the Jews really, what we would call modern-day Jews, because they were from the tribe of Judah, uh, return to Jerusalem and reestablish the kingdom, that, uh, you know, 
God is faithful. But we would also say that God really, in a, in a fuller way, in a, in a more uh, glorified way, fulfilled that promise by giving us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, as we heard the blind man proclaim uh, several weeks ago. He has reestablished the Davidic kingdom, and it is a kingdom that shall have no end. And so that the Lord is faithful. He is faithful to his promises. And we have to remind ourselves that, yes, the Lord is faithful. The Lord has been faithful to us. You know, maybe we need to think about times in our life when maybe we did fall into into very deep sin and the Lord in his mercy lifted us up. Maybe we have to think about times when we suffered illness or suffered different crises and it was the Lord who pulled us through. It was the Lord who really did take us by the hand and lift us up. And, uh, you know, it's not a mistake that, you know, we're in Thanksgiving right now. The, we just got done with the Thanksgiving holiday, a time when we do make these reflections on our life and on our, uh, 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 you know, on how we're living and give thanks to the Lord for our family and for our friends and for all those good things. And so we give thanks to God for his love and his fidelity. And that's really, you know, part of what this time of Advent is all about, to, to remember the past, to remember the good things the Lord has done for us. And then in the, in the second reading from Thessalonians, we're you know, reminded to, to live the gospel now, to live with love and with charity now, to live as God's holy ones now. Uh, you know, Paul says, you know, brothers and sisters, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we have for you, so as to strengthen your hearts to be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his holy ones. Amen. Amen. So yeah, so we're being reminded that, that it's, while this is a time of, of watchful, prayerful waiting, uh, it's also a time to grow in holiness, to grow in virtue, to grow in love. And, you know, love is a verb. It's, a, it's an action word. And, you know, love is expressed through our actions. Faith is expressed through our actions and how we live. And so it's not just a matter of waiting for the kingdom that is to come in order to live in the fullness of Christ. It's to live that fullness now so that when the Lord does return, he sees that we're ready. He sees that we're ready to live in that kingdom that he will give that, that final completion to. And then, you know, in the gospel we do get from Luke 21, we do get this, you know, rather powerful reading where Jesus is telling his disciples about the signs that will happen. Uh, you know, that the uh, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the Earth and the nations will be in dismay and perplexed by the roaring of the seas and the waves. That uh, before our Lord returns in his glory, there will be a tribulation, there will be difficulties, but that we should not lose heart. We should, you know, trust in him. And just have that realization that, yes, the world as we know it is passing away. And we should not have it surprise us like a trap. But 
that we should always be working, always be living the gospel, and you know, just again, don't don't lose heart. You know, again, we're we're living in you know particular times right now, and certainly the and even before you know these, I mean, it seems like it's for years and years that I've been asked, "Are we living in the end times?" and my my response has become well yeah of course we are we've been living in the end times for the last 2000 years our lord's death and resurrection was the initiation of those end times and whether we're living in the actual end of the age i don't know or whether we're simply living in the end of our particular epoch that will then switch over to a new one with you know the human human history still moving in a direction but maybe moving in a di- different direction than it is now you know who knows you know pope francis has talked about that we are not living in a time of change we're living in a change of times and that this is something very significant and so even he has been talking about that. But it's for us to be ready. It's for us not to be frightened, not to be scared, but to live in the light of Christ now. Not to uh, wait for our repentance, but to really repent now. And to understand that the time really is short. St. John Bosco used to talk about the fact that the the problem that young people have is that they think they're going to live forever. (laughs) He didn't exactly think they're going to live forever, but they they thought that they think they're going to have long lives. And that maybe they can, you know, they can waste their youth on sin and on, you know, doing things that are against the gospel. And, you know, there's time to repent, there's time to reform our life, there's time to, you know, get back on the wagon but uh but we don't have that time you know and again i understand he's speaking in the context of the 19th century when life really was precarious in terms of illnesses i mean we think we're in bad times now i mean uh, there was no pandemic and you know a common cold could you know develop into something very worse very quickly and young people did die of things that today are very easily curable. So, I mean, Don Bosco had a, a very big reason for, for saying, talking that way. But I, but I think in general, it's true. Even, even today, even when the life expectancies are, are, are so much better than they were, you know, even than they were 50 years ago, life is, is precious. And we don't know how long we have. So... Live the gospel now. Whether it's our Lord coming back at the end of the age, whether it's our own mortality of you know that day when we do face the Lord, when we when we pass away in this life and pass to the next, we don't know. We don't know really the time or the hour. So we live now. We live the gospel now. We live this life of watchful waiting for the Lord. We keep our lamps lit, 
and ready and prepared. And we take this special time of Advent to clean our house, the house that is our soul. We prepare the room. We sweep it clean. We get rid of the things that uh, are not necessary. And we do away with the old ways, and we put on Christ. And if we have rancor in our hearts, if we have disagreements, if we have hostilities toward other people, especially if these are people very close to us in our lives, brothers and sisters or parents, we, we reconcile those things. We work those things out. Because when the Lord comes to call us, whether it's him coming on the clouds or him coming quietly in the night to take us individually, that we'll be ready. And we won't be afraid because we know that the God is a God of promises, who keeps his promises, who sees the good that we do and sees, more importantly, the faith that's underneath it and will lead us back into his firm and loving embrace. And that, in a way, is what Advent is all about. So in the next section, we'll, we'll take a look at kind of the, the Word of God running through this particular week. Um, so we'll leave Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, behind and begin looking a little bit at the week in our next segment. Now, looking ahead to the uh, second Sunday of Advent, we're introduced in the Gospel reading to one of the two very, very important biblical figures for this liturgical time outside of our uh, Lord himself, and that's John the Baptist. Here we have John the Baptist preaching repentance at the Jordan and calling uh, Jerusalem to prepare because the kingdom of God is at hand. We hear about uh, John every Advent, uh, but remember, we're in a new liturgical year, and this particular year, uh, year C, we are hearing from Luke's Gospel. So we're getting the the readings about uh, uh, John the Baptist in this case through Luke's lens, through his point of view. And keep in mind, Luke is a doctor. Luke is well-educated. Luke is a Greek. He is not, and maybe not Greek in the, in the literal sense of the word, but hell, you know, from some Hellenistic uh, background, non-Jewish background. And at the beginning of his gospel, he talks about the fact, or his gospel account, he talks about the fact that he is trying to assemble in an orderly fashion the events that have taken place in our time. Uh, he places himself among others who he does not specify, who have also attempted to tell the story of Jesus. And he's, you know, be, being very clear that he's almost, 
you know, being the first century version of a journalist about it. He's checking the records, he's going to the various sources, he's interviewing people, he's uh, going with uh, gun and flashlight, as one of my professors in college would say, investigating into this story. And he very much wants to place Jesus' story within an historical context. Now, obviously, Luke, we say he's a, a doctor, a medical doctor. He, he wouldn't have been a, a scientist in the modern sense of the world. He would have gone about the practice of medicine in a, in a different way than the practice of medicine today. And it's the same way with in terms of his historical investigation. We, we can't think of a modern biographer uh, who is, you know, digging uh, for the for the documents and the primary sources, and is trying to put together a chronological and uh, you know as complete an account of Jesus's life as he can. Luke, like John, though Luke, you know, was saying I'm trying to put together an orderly uh, record here of Jesus's actions, but like John, he's choosing material based on the idea that this is a document to bring us to faith. This is a document to bring us to to faith in Jesus Christ. So while it it is historical. I would not say that Luke is not writing history. He is writing history. Uh, he's writing it as a first century person would, would have written it. And when we're coming to like the first and second century, this is the period kind of in which historical writing, as we un have come to understand, is beginning to take shape. And so Luke is placing as I said, the story of Jesus within this historical context. So he's saying off the bat, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, now we're in Luke 3, the beginning of the third chapter of Luke, and the verses are 1 to 6. So Luke 3, 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, Tetrarch of the regions of Eturia and Traconitus, sorry about that, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, or Abilene as I like to call it, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the desert. Wow, that's a mouthful, right? He got that, uh, that run-on sentence habit probably from Paul. But anyway, putting my you know, snarky comments aside, the whole point here is that Luke, again, is trying to set up an historical context. Uh, Pontius Pilate is the Roman authority. Okay, let's go back before that. Tiberius Caesar is the princeps. He is the... They, the Romans didn't use the term emperor. We use the term emperor. Uh a whole long is a whole long reason for that. The, the you know the the Romans did not believe in monarchy, and you know the founding legend of of the Roman Republic has to do with the rejection of a of a foreign monarchy, 
and the establishment of this of this republic. So when the republic fell, and what we call today the imperial period began, the emperors, what we call today the emperors, they couldn't really call themselves that. They couldn't call themselves king, and they really couldn't call themselves emperor. So they called themselves princep or princep. I, you know, it depends on how you pronounce the Latin, I guess. Um, first citizen. They were the first citizen. So Tiberius is the second emperor after Augustus, and so he's he's reigning. And Pontius Pilate is the governor. Sometimes it's procurator. Sometimes you'll hear him referred to as a procurator. And he is basic. He is basically the authority in Judea and in Jerusalem. Uh, he's the law. Now the Romans had this way of 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 not really wanting to interfere with local custom, and even not really wanting. To, you know, they weren't they weren't really interested in making you a Roman. They just wanted your money, essentially. They, they wanted your money and they wanted uh, the land so that they, they could be a buffer between uh, their enemy nations and uh, the Roman you know, heartland in Rome and the Italian peninsula. So all they were really interested in was really collecting taxes and you know, keeping the populace pacified. So they would allow... Let's say a fellow like Herod, uh, who was from the you know local nobility, to maintain a a position of authority. So they had a a tetrarch, is was basically the leader over a quarter, a fourth of a particular area. So basically, Philip is the brother of of Herod, and you know if we know remember the story of John the Baptist. Uh, you know, Herod is, you know, making house with Philip's wife while Philip is still alive. And that's, you know, John the Baptist uh, calls him out on that. But Herod and, and Philip have control over these areas. And there's this other, you know, uh, uh, the Galilee and uh, Ituria. And Traconitus has, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, Traconitus uh, you know, has the control over these other regions. He's also setting up the fact that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests during this this period. So it would be like saying, you know, in the in the first year of, of the reign of the presidency of, of Joe Biden, uh, you know, when I keep, I don't remember who the governor of New York is now. <laughs> we, you know, when, uh, you know, Mario, uh, excuse me, when, uh, not Mario, but uh, when Andrew Cuomo was, was governor and, uh, and Timothy Dolan was the archbishop of, cardinal archbishop of New York, uh, you know, Father Tom Provenzano was sent to uh, to Porchester, New York. He's he's setting up a historical context, and in a way, he's saying this is not myth, this is not legend. Myths and legend happen in you know galaxies far, far away, a long time ago. But he's 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 grounding all this in history.
And he's saying, okay, John, it's the John, the son of Zechariah that we were talking about earlier, and how, you know, if you remember his mother Elizabeth, uh, who was thought to be barren, uh, bears a son in the good old, old Testament tradition. And, you know, John is the cousin of, of Jesus. Uh, he goes out through the whole region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so let's, let's talk about John's baptism for a second. This can be very, very confusing to some people. John is not baptizing with the baptism of Jesus. This is a ceremonial washing that some Jewish groups would have done, and I understand some Jewish groups still do. It's not a, a, a very common thing today, and I'm not sure if it was even a, that common a thing back then. But the idea was that after a person, let's say, had a conversion experience, let's say they had been uh, you know, wandering away from the faith and had some type of a, a religious experience that brought them back, they might go through this ritual washing to symbolize their repentance. I, I like to compare it to when we receive ashes on Ash Wednesday. The ashes don't do anything. I mean, the ashes are just ashes. But they symbolize our internal desire to repent. You know, their, their, their total worth is really based on our own desire to use, in this case, Lent well as a time of repentance and penance for our sins and turning back to the Lord. And it's sort of the same thing with this baptism. So John's baptism really does not have any power in and of itself. It is strictly an internal symbol, or an external symbol, excuse me. He talks about the fact that the one who will follow me will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit meaning that his baptism will actually have power. So the baptism we receive is not the baptism of John and is not, uh, uh, yeah, is not, is, is not simply an external symbol. It's an external symbol that symbolizes God's grace and that actually confers the grace that it symbolizes. Okay? It's a sacrament, in other words. So we have to make, make that very clear. Later on in the, in the Christmas season, we have uh, the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, and I'll get into more of that when we, we touch that, uh, that particular uh, uh, observance. Jesus did not need to be baptized. We always have to kind of remind ourselves of that. Jesus did not need to be baptized. Uh Jesus is doing it as his first public act of obedience, putting himself with sinners and standing among sinners and having himself identified with sinners, even though he is not a sinner himself. And it's kind of the first act of humiliation on his way to the cross. It's a sort of first public acceptance of the mission that the Father is giving him. But I don't want to say too much right now because I do want to save it for when we, we celebrate that feast. Okay? So, and then it, it the, the, the reading ends with this um, uh, callback to Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the desert, 
Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The winding roads shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. In all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is being credited to Isaiah. If we are paying attention to the first reading, like I hope we <laughs> will, uh, it's also echoing back to that first reading that the, the church has given us in, uh, from Baruch. And Baruch is, is uh, speaking to the exiles uh, after the, when the, the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon and basically giving them a, a hopeful sign um, that the Lord will return them to the land. The Lord will uh, not only return them to the land, but He'll He'll make the path straight for us. He'll He'll level the mountains and fill in the valleys, and 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 make that road back to uh, Israel easier for us. And by the by, you know, we we believe as Christians ultimately by the death and resurrection of his son. Okay, we believe that that prophecy was fulfilled in its immediate form when uh, the the Jewish people were released from their their exile and allowed to return to the the promised land. But we believe in a deeper sense that really these Old Testament prophecies have their really greatest and highest fulfillment in Christ Himself, who leads us back from sin. And from uh, all the dangers, the moral dangers and that, that we face, and gives us this promise of eternal life on high. And we believe also that, again, these prophecies will be truly fulfilled in their completeness when our Lord returns again at the end of days. So I'm going to end right here with just a reminder that, again, we shouldn't look at Advent, strictly speaking, as a preparation for Christmas. That's certainly an aspect of it, but it's a, a distinct season on its own, and its focus is the second coming of Christ and our preparedness for that second coming, our need to experience repentance in our life and that turning back to the Lord and really being honest with ourselves about who we are, where we are in our spiritual journey and with God's grace, you know, making our way back and allowing him to carry us back. So yeah, I'm going to end right there. I, I'll give a little bit of a preview. Um, you know, this was not a homily per se. Again, my masses uh, this weekend, they're all in, in Spanish, so I'm not going to be... Uh, posting my homily, you know, exactly, maybe Sunday night or Monday morning, I'll give a little, re you know, resuming of it, a little um, summary of it in, in English. Uh, but looking forward to next week and to the episode after this, I'm working on a few things that don't really have anything to do directly with, with Advent, but just uh, I'm working on the rise of witchcraft, that uh, many young people are turning to witchcraft and the occult and maybe talk a little bit about why, look at a couple of articles on the topic. There are many articles out there, but maybe to look at a couple of articles in particular and maybe give my own personal take on it. Uh, I do have some further thoughts on the Beatles uh, documentary. Uh, 
uh, get back, but not just for its own sake, uh, just to look at what the hype has been around it and, you know, how uh, the debates over this particular miniseries revolve around a couple of what we call competing uh, narratives. And just to talk about the idea of the grand narrative and our desire today to kind of break everything down into narrative uh, in terms of how we look at history and how we kind of analyze uh, current events. Usually it's through these narratives, which are really nothing more than a series of preconceived notions that we have. And we, we try to kind of make everything fit neatly into these preconceived notions. And, you know, obviously I think that's a, that's a mistake that we make. It's a natural mistake, I think, but still a mistake that we make. So look at, again, Beatles get back, but through this kind of lens of the narrative. And uh, looking at the narrative, uh, you know, how it relates to, to topics that are a bit more serious. Admittedly, you know, a, a Beatles documentary is somewhat frivolous and is really just entertainment. But to look and see really how, how dangerous it can be to just focus ourselves on the narrative. And also there are two great uh, Marian feasts. Uh, Wednesday is the Immaculate Conception, Holy Day of Obligation. Um, and then the 12th, which is a Sunday, falls on a Sunday this year, is Our Lady of Guadalupe. But uh, you know, even though it's a Sunday of Advent, if you are at all familiar with Latino parishes, uh, you can't ignore it. It's a huge feast and a beautiful feast. So I'll, I don't know if I'll get to everything next time, but definitely I will get to these, these two great Marian feasts of the, um, of the Immaculate Conception because it's the Holy Day of Obligation and the uh, patroness of the United States. You know, Mary's the patroness under that title and Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is just a really great, fun feast, but an important feast as well. So, and what am I talking about? I keep on. There's so much going on. I didn't really have any time again this week. A lot of things going on this week in the parish, so that's why I didn't. I feel like I'm getting just to the bare basics of things. We also have this Supreme Court uh, uh, case over the the Mississippi uh, abortion law that I think. Again, some of the oral arguments that uh, have truly been stunning. Uh, truly, truly stunning. Uh, and yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that. So we'll talk a little bit about the the abortion law in Mississippi and the case in front of the Supreme Court, the two great Marian feasts, the problem with looking at life and history through the lens of a preconceived narrative, and just keep on talking about beautiful uh, Advent, the beautiful Advent season as we move along. All right. Until then, God bless you all. I love you all. And uh, please keep me in your prayers as I will keep you in mind. God bless and bye-bye.